You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Good morning, good morning. Uh, Welcome. You guys know what comes after the second song today? I mean, the last song today? All the people that forgot to fast forward their clock an hour, right? You get it? Okay, anyway, so it's good to see you guys here. Welcome. As you know, we are going through Acts, and we have made it to the passage that I'm so excited about. This, is, this verse, these two verses are kind of my uh, a, a life verse for me, a, a verses that I uh, came across uh, when I first got into ministry, and it completely changed a lot of my thinking. It changed uh, how I approached life, and, and these verses were awesome. And it's found in chapter 5, verses 38 and 39, and I'm going to read those to you right now. Uh, we'll get back into it to understand the background and the, where the story is coming from. But let me share these verses. Chapter 5, verse 38 and 39 says, Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But as, if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. I love this passage, and I love this because there's many times that I've seen throughout my life, and maybe you guys have relayed in the same thing, that there's times that you've done something and it's failed, and it was of your own origin, right? That there's things that I did that I know just failed miserably, and I can see that it was all my idea, it was all in my, my power, but the times that I've fully relied on God, the times that I've turned to Him, the times that I've been trying to follow Him, it succeeded, because you'd only find yourself fighting against God. And I've seen this throughout my life time and again. And, and I'm sure you guys have stories along those lines. We even saw that this week. Uh, I wanted to tell you. So we have these signs, these blue signs, pray for our community. And if you've been here the past two weeks, we've been passing these out. We have three left. So if any three people want to take those, I'll have them at the back on the way out. But we have these signs, pray for our community. And we put them, put them out two weeks ago as we got to the part where the believers in Jerusalem were praying. They gathered together and they prayed for boldness to speak in their, t- in their town. They prayed for Jerusalem. And it says that the Holy Spirit came and the, the ground shook in the midst of their prayer. And so our desire was that we would go and pray for the community, and we passed out these signs for people to put in their yards and at their places of work. And we had about 50 or 60 signs left over. So this Tuesday, Elliot, Chris, and I got in my car, loaded up the extra signs, and we went to go just splatter Bristol with these signs. And, and we took off from the church and went, went down Volunteer Parkway, and we just, every time we hit a red light, we'd pull over, someone jump out and place a sign. Every time we saw an opportunity, whenever we came across a church, we'd put it in their parking lot because I thought, what church? They're going to feel bad if they take the sign down, right? And so all those churches have the sign and, and anywhere like where there's a school and so we knew there'd be slow uh, because of school zone, we put the signs and we put these all up and down Volunteer Parkway. Uh, we went and put them around downtown and then uh, Euclid Avenue and out to the Pinnacle and then up to Exit 7 and we just kind of put them all over, right? And so we spent a couple hours just placing these signs and having a good time and placing these any weird spot that we could think and any place that people would be. Later that day, uh, we had an appointment downtown, and so Sarah and I and the kids are driving, and it was so cool because we were coming across these signs, and I'd be like, there's one, hey, here's one, guys, and it was neat. At each one of these signs, my family prayed, and so we prayed for about 20 minutes going downtown, um, praying for every spot, whether we would praying for that church and that God would be glorified there with, uh, if we had a sign at a church or praying for that school. 
praying for those businesses or uh, wherever we put it. All of my favorite fast food restaurants had one of these signs, and so we prayed for my friends at Wendy's and my friends at Taco Bell and my friends at Chick-fil-A, and I I got a whole long list. And so we prayed for all these places uh, at Dave's Chick-fil-A on Exit 7. There's one right there. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, And so we we have these all over, right? And, And we were praying, and it was great. As a family, we prayed through the city. Thursday, I go out, and most of them are gone, and we were just greatly disappointed. I thought, oh, okay, and so um, all the ones on Volunteer Parkway, most of them are missing, and just kind of disappointed and think, oh, they already took them down. I figured the mowers would eventually take them down, but I didn't think they were mowing this early. Well, come to find out, Brad Deal sent me a text message and said, hey, Someone brought these by today. And so the person that was assigned to take down the signs to prepare for mowing found these signs and didn't want to throw them away like they do all the other signs. And Brad Deal had had two of these signs at his pharmacy, and so whoever this person was happens to be uh, a customer of Brad's and knew that this sign was at Brad's place and didn't know where these signs came from because they don't have our name on them, but knew Brad might know. And so he brought a pile of these signs to Brad. Well, Brad happens to have these signs at his pharmacy, and customers have been asking for this sign. And so what seemed like maybe man would think that this failed, that the signs were taken and even thrown away, God ended up to intervene, had someone that had the the heart to save these signs, a connection to Brad, brought them to Brad, and Brad has been passing them out to all his customers that have come through at his pharmacy. And I know that sounds like maybe a silly little story, but it's a story that I see this verse active. That is, if it is of God, you'll only find yourself fighting against God. And so while they're not lining Volunteer Parkway, they're lining customers of Brad's Pharmacy, and it's still at different locations around town. And it's so cool to see God's will over these these signs. If it's of man, it would fail, but if it's of God... Somehow these signs are collected by a believer that gives them to Brad, that gives them out to customers, right? And so you see this verse time and again. And so I've been looking forward to this week, looking forward to chapter 5, because I love this verse. And so if you have your Bibles, open it chapter 5. We'll also have it up on the screen as we're going through and we're looking at the, the story of the early church. When I was working on this message, I came across an illustration that I thought was just awesome. It was by N.T. Wright, and he shares, imagine that you have a concert hall, a very famous concert hall, a world-renowned one, Carnegie Hall, Rockefeller Center, maybe, maybe it's the Barter Theater in Abingdon, but you have a concert hall or a place where plays are that's very famous that people from all around come to watch a show at your place. They come to enjoy a perfect concert, come to enjoy an opera come to enjoy a band, whatever it might be. But all the most important people come to your place. All the best performers come to your place. Everyone is coming here, and you are the owner of this concert hall. Now imagine outside on the sidewalk is a small group of street performers. They're doing some singing, maybe playing a little music. It's nothing much, doesn't, make, doesn't draw much of your attention, and you just kind of leave them there, let them stay on the, on the sidewalk. True, that's your property, but, but it's not much of a distraction, right? And so people are coming to your concert, and in the midst of while they're coming, they pass the street performers, and, and maybe they stop and listen a little bit, but they continue on in and get their tickets and go to your show. Well, eventually, the street performers are there every single day. 
And the word gets out. And so people are coming to your concert, but they're also coming and they're listening to these street performers. Maybe they're coming a little early and they're staying. Maybe they're even coming in late to the show inside because they've been paying attention to these street performers. The crowds are growing and the popularity has grown for, for this little band outside on the sidewalk. So much so that as time has progressed, people are no longer even coming for your concert inside. Now they're just coming to stay outside on the sidewalk. Crowds are gathering and they've come and the street performers have drawn so much attention that it's now taken away from your concert hall. People are now no longer buying tickets and so you're losing money. People are no longer thinking that it's as important to be inside Carnegie Hall. It's just important to be outside. That they're only making it that far and they're not making it all the way in. This is kind of the scene that we see here in chapter 5. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, there's this group of, of religious leaders, are the ones overseeing the temple grounds. They're the ones overseeing the teaching. They're the ones overseeing the sacrifices and the worship. For, for much of time, people have been coming to Jerusalem, coming to the temple to make sacrifices, to, to worship God. And these guys have been the ones in charge. And now, they're coming to the temple, but they're staying outside on the sidewalk. And they're listening to this new group of believers this group of Christians, these apostles that are teaching with such conviction, with such passion. They're, they're being drawn to the crowds that are watching these miracles happen outside. And instead of coming inside, all the intentions outside. And they're jealous. So this is where we pick up on the story in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The temple was a huge place. It covered over several acres. We often think of it as just a building, but it, it was a whole land. And so Solomon's colonnade, or Solomon's porch, as some people describe it, is an area just kind of outside, like it's the sidewalk outside the temple. It's still part of the temple grounds. You would enter into this colonnade, and it was a beautiful, majestic place. And here is where the apostles are teaching. It's kind of a dangerous thing, right? To go to the temple to do the teaching. This is where the, the religious leaders that arrested Jesus are residing. But this is also where all the Jews go. And so the apostles know that they're trying to speak to the Jewish people. They're trying to speak to them and to teach them about the Messiah that we've been waiting for for hundreds and thousands of years has finally come. He died and rose again. And so they're coming and they're meeting the Jews where they're at, at the temple. Although it's risky for their safety, it's where the people needed to hear. And so they're meeting there on Solomon's colonnade. Verse 15 says, As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Seems kind of crazy, like the shadows could heal the people. But it seems crazy, but we see crazy things throughout the, the Bible, especially throughout the New Testament. People in Ephesus were taking handkerchiefs that Paul had touched, and they would go and lay them on the sick, and the sick were healed. We see Jesus spit in some dirt, make some mud, and put it on the eyes of a blind man, and he can see again. The, the shadows seems crazy, but the important part was, it was God who was healing. 
by whatever means, whether it's by spit mud, a handkerchief, or shadows, God is the one healing. And he's doing this so that people would see the apostles are teaching, and those teachings are from God. These miracles are designed to enhance, to, to help convince people that this is of God. These are divine teachings as these are divine miracles. And so the people are coming, and they're hearing, they're being healed, and some are coming to believe. In this passage, we see three groups of people. As you kind of break it down, if you look in, in verse 12, it talks about the believers, that they had come and they were there together, that they were in one heart, that they were in one accord, that they were a group of believers that were believing and they were united. They were the church. Verse 13 and 14, you see some people that were kind of on the fence, that they're coming by, but they don't want to be completely associated for risk that they might get caught. And so they're listening in from a distance. They're getting closer and closer, and, and maybe they're asking for healing for themselves or for a loved one, and says that they were accepting Jesus and they began to believe. These are the people that are kind of on the fence that you think you might be ready to make your commitment to Jesus. You know all the right questions. You've been, grow, grew up in church your whole life or maybe just recently, and you're really close. And it's time to make that decision, to make that leap, to make that jump and fully invest yourself and follow the Savior. And then we see in, in verse 16, verse 15 and 16, there's another group of people. Luke kind of makes a separation that there's those that came for healing and, and that they believed. But then it says that others came from distances and just brought people that were sick. And they were still healed. As the ones that were kind of still associated with the, the apostles in some form or fashion to, to want the healing. But they weren't willing to accept Jesus in any form or fashion. These three groups are still around today. These three groups are in the church. These three groups are probably in this room right now. That There's those that are sold out believers and are passionate for God. There's some in this room that are thinking about accepting Jesus and, and are weighing, the, 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 weighing this out to see if they want to accept Jesus as their Savior and give their life. And then there's some that might fall in that third group. That there's just so much pain. There's too many questions that we're not quite ready to accept Jesus yet. And I say yet, because i got to believe that the people that were coming and seeing these healings and were hearing the apostles' teachings, i got to believe that some of them came to accept Jesus Christ later. Because as they came and they were touched by the word, they had to have seen who Jesus was. And so you have these three groups that are all associated, and then you have the apostles who are on the verge of really upsetting some powerful people. You got the Sanhedrin, as I had mentioned, it's made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you probably know this, and if you don't, let me tell you about these two groups. They're the religious leaders, and they do not see eye to eye. They disagree on almost everything theologically, and yet they are both in charge of leading the, the Jewish people. And so you have the Pharisees who believe in things like the resurrection of the dead one day and believe in angels. And then you have the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Sadducees who do not believe in angels. And so those are just two examples of many theological differences between the two groups. They would often disagree, they'd often fight, they'd often bicker within the Sanhedrin, but there's one thing that brought them unity, a hatred for Jesus and his people. And so they've come together and they, didn't, and they hated Jesus because he was drawing attention away from the temple, attention away from their teachings. 
You know, they hate Jesus' followers because, like I said, it's like that group of street performers that are now taken away from their glory, that are hurting their pride and jealousy has crept in. And so you have the Sanhedrin in verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They, arrived, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now it's the whole apostles. Earlier, a couple of weeks ago, we had talked about the arrest of Peter and John. Now all 12 of them, the leaders of this group, are thrown in jail. Verse 19 says, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. I love this part, right? Uh, some people don't think that, Jesus, that God has a sense of humor. I think he totally does. I actually I wrote my thesis on humor in the Bible. Um, I think that there's a lot of examples of humor in the Bible, and this is one of those. And you, you might be looking at this and be like, I don't get it. It's not how, how funny. But it is. When you think the Sadducees are the ones that arrested him, and that Sadducees do not believe in angels, of all the ways that God could have freed these guys from jail, he sends an angel. Just to be like, take that, guys, all right? And so he sends an angel, and the angel says, go, stand in the temple courts, and tell the people all about this new life. It's easy to forget that we're at the beginning stages of the early church. They weren't even called Christians yet. The angel doesn't even have a name for them. He just says, tell them about this new life. I love that description of what it is to be a Christian, to have a new life in Christ, to be set free, to have new life. And so the angel frees them and says, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. We don't know what the disciples did this night. We don't have an account hour by hour or minute by minute. But I got to assume that they were set free. The jail is opened up. They, get, they escape and they're now on the streets. And they go quickly to the group of believers that I'm sure are praying throughout the night as their leaders have all been arrested. And they go and there's great rejoicing and there's great worshiping and great prayer going on. And then at, at daybreak when the temple gates are open up, who's waiting in line to get in? These 12 guys. There's nothing holding them back. They're in line waiting to get in and they go back to their spot and they begin to speak. They begin to preach again. They begin to perform the miracles once again, even though they've been warned not to. Verse 21 says, When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officer did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what might lead to this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the, that the people would stone them. So they go and they find out the apostles are here teaching again there at the temple. And so they arrest them for a second time. Verse 27 says, The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. We won't even say the name of Jesus. They just say, make us guilty of this man's blood. They're trying to shift the blame onto the apostles. You're the one making us guilty. It's not because that they sentenced Jesus to death. It's now the apostles that are making them look bad. 
verse 29, we see Peter. Again, imagine this Peter, the one that denied Jesus three times, now has the Holy Spirit, and he's emboldened before the religious leaders, before the elders of Israel. It says, Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. Remember, again, Peter's talking to the Sadducees specifically. What do Sadducees not believe in? Angels. They also don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's one of the first things that Peter says. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring, bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. As you can assume, the, the people, the leaders are upset, and it says when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. And then we get to that story that we started this morning with. There's a wise Pharisee named Gamaliel. He was a teacher of the law, and he's, he's that wise old man that you want to learn from. We see him at other times in the book of Acts. We'll see that he was a teacher of many prominent and powerful Pharisees, one of which name was Saul, who had become Paul. The guy that wrote much of the New Testament learned under him. And so we see, verse 34, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be someone, and for about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared, to, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. While this is a wise old Pharisee, there's some error in his logic here. He's comparing Jesus to these other, these other revolutionaries. He's comparing the apostles to their followers. And he's saying, we killed those leaders and their followers dispersed. And so he's kind of making this argument, but he misses one incredibly important thing. The power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that's in these followers, the Holy Spirit that's emboldening them, the Holy Spirit that's willing them to, to get up and be at standing in line to go back and preach when they were just arrested for the exact same thing. He continues on, verse 38. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But as if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. His plan of attack was simply to step back. It wasn't the best advice in reality. His advice is, let's just, let's just wait. They're going to destroy themselves. His advice, he didn't believe that this was of God. He figured that this was of man and, and it was going to fail. And so his advice is to step back and not do anything. And so uh, to just be reactive isn't really a very good stance. But I still love these verses because of what they mean. And so we'll come back to these verses, but it goes on. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then, then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Like I said, these verses, 38, 39, are powerful. It speaks a big truth. That is, if it is of man, it will surely fail. If it is of God, you will only find yourself fighting against God. That they can try whipping these apostles, they can try threatening them. But if it is of God, they would only be fighting against God. And I've seen these verses come true in my life time and again. I'd share that it's not just a sign. I've seen many fails, right? Uh, throughout my life, I've had many times that I was trying to do things on my own, that I had my own ideas, my own will, and, and they often seem to fail, right? When I look back, there's the time that I was part of like that pyramid scheme thing in my early 20s, and, and that failed miserably, right? That was definitely not God's plan for me to be part of. There was a time that um, pretty much every summer in high school, I thought I would lift weights with my legs and I'd be able to dunk a basketball. And so this was my game plan. This was the plan at the beginning of every summer, and it was definitely not of God because it failed miserably. I never did dunk a basketball. I'd usually lift weights for like a week, and then I'd go eat a donut. But, uh, so that would always fail because there was just, it was just me. There was the time that Sarah and I thought about uh, bleaching my hair. And it was a Saturday night and it seemed like a great idea. Except for it turns out I have a lot more red in my hair than anyone anticipated. And uh, I had Ronald McDonald orange hair the next morning when I had to do a presentation up on stage. And so you have these moments of great failure that I look back and be like, that was definitely uh, not of God. This was not his plan. But those are just kind of some of the fun ones. There's other times that I look back and I know I wasn't turning to God. There's relationships that I saw fall apart because I wasn't turning to God. I wasn't praying for those. There's times that a dark time in my life where instead of turning to God, I began to withdraw. Stopped reading my Bible, stopped praying as much. And went down into a little spiral of despair. This was not of God. This was of man. And it was failing. And so when you look at this verse, I see the side of, if it is a man, it will surely fail. But I've also seen many times, if it is God, you will only find yourself fighting against God. That times in my life that it didn't make sense what, what happened, but God was able to shine through, and it was a great success. Time that I've seen God carry me and Sarah, and times when it doesn't make sense, and times that I wanted to give up, God was there. And that's where I love the last part of that verse is you will only find yourself fighting against God. There's been times that I wanted to give up, even when I'm following what I believe God's plan was. There's times that I'm sure you're in that situation too. That you can't take one more day in this marriage. You can't take one more day fighting, one more medical test coming back negative. You can't take one more day of trying to study and the pressure of grades so I can get into the right grad school. One more, one more, one more. And it seems like even though I feel like this was God's plan, even though this is what I believe he's wanting me to do, I'm just ready to give up. And that's where this verse, the end, kicks in. It's not you will find yourself fighting against man and God. You'll find yourself fighting against God. It's those times that I want to encourage you to take heart. Because it's those moments that God's carrying you. That those times that you don't feel like you can go across the finish line, God's going to come alongside and finish that race with you. 
As I think about this verse, as, as I said, this verse has meant a lot to me over my life. And oftentimes I'll think of this, and when I see illustrations, I think about this verse. And there's a video that I saw many years ago, and it's always connected me to this verse. It's a story of Derek Redmond, and he was a runner in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. He was favored to win that race, and he takes off, and the, the gun shoots, and he takes off, and he has an injury in the midst of the race. And we have a video of this, but what you don't see in the video is his dad has been cheering him on. They've been looking forward to this all along, and his dad has been there, and he's been there in the midst of the training, and he's been walked him through the training, and they were looking forward to this Olympics, looking forward to Derek hopefully winning the gold. And he sees his son go down. And from the stands, you have this dad, and nothing can stop him. And his dad comes flying down the stairs, and he jumps over the rail, and the security tries to get in his way, and he pushes security aside, and he runs onto the track, and he picks up his boy. And together they finish the race. And we have the video to show you, but I want you to think about this is what it's like with our walk. And at the times when we just want to give up, that's when God comes along and helps carry us. It's when God comes along and is there as our support. That's when God comes along. And while the world might be fighting against us, they'll find themselves only fighting against God. God, you only find yourself fighting against God. So we come to this time of communion, that verse rings true, that God sent his son to die for us, and that while Satan had ideas, he found himself fighting against God. And while he thought that death of Jesus would put the nail in his coffin, three days later he arose because he found himself fighting against God. And in our life, at times when we feel like giving up, I want you to be encouraged that God will come alongside you. If it is of God, the world will find itself fighting against God. 
And so during this time of communion, I want to just to encourage you to come to the Lord. Just ask him to help. Ask him to be there to help you see the times that he's carrying you across the finish line. And thank him for what he's already done, which was to give us eternity because he conquered sin, because he conquered death, because the chains of the, the sin that we have has been set free, because Satan found himself fighting against God. If you'll pray with me, Lord, we thank you that you are on our side. And God, that in the story of our salvation, if it was of our origin, if it was just by what I did and what each one of us has done, it would surely fail. But thanks to you sending your son, the world has only found itself fighting against God. And that is a fight Satan and the world will never win. God, we thank you for dying for us on the cross and for raising again. We thank you for salvation and eternity. And Lord, as we come to this time of communion, let us be able just to spend this time focused on you, to be cry out to you. Lord, that if there are people here that need to accept you for the first time, have them do so. Have them come talk to one of us in the back to be able to make that commitment and give their life over to you. God, if there's people that just need an encouragement reminder that at a time when they feel like they can't go one more step, that you're coming alongside and that you are fighting for us. Lord, we lift this up in your name.